In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Piscatelli, and we are inspired by a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him everywhere he goes, Raymond Wong Jr. Thank you, thank you. Give me liberty or give me death. We are in episode 51, or this is episode 51, we're in season three, and this is the first plank or first part in our five-part, maybe six-part miniseries. Depends on how you count. Um, This episode title will be No Taxation Without Representation. So we're we're going to do something a little different. We're going to merge a couple of things together and try and cover it in our usual 30-minute spin. Um, it was very, it's, it's difficult to think about or tear these things apart. We don't want to separate the idea that, um, we are a representative government and it costs money to operate it. And those two things go hand in hand, right? Taxation is something as citizens, we all have to deal with and face. And it's through our representation in the system that we control those mechanisms. And, try to avoid getting you know burdened with uh, crazy amounts of taxation and other things right coming from the government so these two things it's they go hand in hand you can't separate the two i want to i want to just put a little bit of framing before we jump right in um the, the the founders themselves were really philosophers they were very innovative they actually thought of a government without taxation if you can imagine that, right? So imagine the original draft calling for zero taxation. Now, uh, and any good understanding of how the economy and the system works and our vehicle works as a system, it really needs a taxation or some kind of structure. So we're not unrealistic like the founders, at least at this point. Yeah, thank you, Ray. That's a, a great amount or great perspective to anchor this on. Um, even hearkening a little bit back to the car model, right? We like to use the metaphors when we can. And if we use the car metaphor in this scenario, would we be in agreement that taxation ends up being the fuel that runs the thing? You know, it's, it's interesting. I would say that the taxation is the fuel mix, not so much the fuel alone, right? Cause it's complex, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it, it taxation is kind of like, what drives the components of it? Like what kind of smog are we kicking out the back end? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. The mix. Cause you need air and fuel and who knows what else, <laughs> a little oil to keep the pistons going. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> um, so with that being said, uh, one of the reasons why we're kind of harping well i'm gonna use the word harping on this but really we're at the end of course with all these episodes we'll have a call to action or a set of calls to action um but our goal in raising this up is to just make clear the position that we're taking on this as a as i said earlier a plank and a platform so to speak we're we're on the five point plan for mutual aid for mutual need so with that in mind, um, one of the things we want to do is make elections and taxation consistent and fair for everybody. Those two things are certainly not fair, um, and they're certainly not fair for all. So we need to un, 
jury rig the system and take on some of the following principles in the process of unjury rigging things. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw out some of these bullets here and we can discuss them. So this is all around equal representation. And I don't think to any of our listeners, any of this will be surprising, but if it is, let's have a discussion. So the first thing that we note here is that we need to uh, have this principle in mind of making competitive districts. And when I say competitive districts, I mean, when somebody's running for to, to be your representative in Congress, or even your state legislature, let's say, anybody who's running for office to represent you, it should be a pretty competitive race. These should be people with really good ideas that have a chance of being effective. Um, one of the problems we have today is we don't have competitive districts, and, and a lot of that comes back to the parties um, and the party system and how they garner you know, certain control of certain areas. But quite frankly, uh, let me use San Francisco as an example where it really doesn't matter how blue or red you are. You should still have competing ideas. You should still have representatives fighting to represent you and have distinct approaches to solving problems. So in San Francisco, it's so blue. All we vote against is shades of blue. And it's a flavor of progressivism versus moderate Democrats that we don't see anywhere else in the country because San Francisco is so blue. We're, we're so on the side of blue. We still have to find the dividing line between opposing candidates. And so progressivism in San Francisco doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. It's so progressive, right? And then the moderates are much more like a regular Democrat anywhere else in the country. Um, and those tend to be our competing um, options, so to speak, um, when people are running for, for office in San Francisco. And of course, it's very different on, on the Republican side of the fence. You know, you've got everything from maybe Tea Party at the extreme, uh, all the way again to moderates in the middle. So all citizens benefit when we have good options for who to vote for to represent us in Congress. The other thing we need to do is make sure that we have equal access to voting. So it doesn't really do, do anybody any good if you have you know good options to vote for, but you really don't have any way to effectively cast your ballot especially if you don't have mail-in voting um, and you have to physically go to a precinct and there's no early voting and, and the precincts are getting moved around in all kinds of places. So the parties are having a grand old time with making it very difficult for certain individuals to vote. And so we have to stay vigilant on that. The, it's almost a good thing you you were here at this point. I want to and say that the the fuel, right? You just said fuel, so let's get back to the car. Imagine if they made legislation that said, "Well, we're just going to make fuels stations less convenient." Okay, we're just going to make it less convenient. Okay, no, no, it can't be near the freeway. It can't be, you know, they can't have bathrooms at the gas stations. No more bathrooms, you know, along the highway. No bathrooms along I ten. End it too convenient. So it really comes down to think about it. We just, we just tied it to the fuel and this is all on accident, which I'm really excited about. Um, but now just imagine if they limited your fuel, imagine if you had to travel farther to get some gas, just put it in that context. I'm not going to use the word, the beauty of it, but 
the reality of it is I think we're going to get a sense of that sooner than we realized in real life um, due to rising gas prices right now, which is a really great metaphor. Thank you, Ray. Sorry, I'm still kind of reeling thinking about that. <laughs> we would be up in arms pretty quickly. <laughs> or we will be soon. We'll see how much gas is available. Another bullet to throw out there, because this is becoming more problematic than ever, um, given the major differences between the parties and the fact that American citizens don't seem to be voting along the lines of their own best interests as well as they may have in the past. So one of the things we need to look into is making the popular vote reign for the presidency. So we have this electoral college situation. It's pretty cockamamie. It's really old. It was the last thing finished as a part of the committee for unfinished business when the constitution left the, the current or latest foundational version of the constitution was written. <laughs> it was rushed and raced in just something to get approved and get us over the line. And we can see some of the major failings and fault lines in the in the electoral college system. So we're going to provide a call to action at the end. We don't need to discuss it much here unless, Ray, you have a topic you want to bring up on moving us towards popular vote for presidencies. It's strange to me that I, I have conversations on the metaverse, most of them, um, with individuals at our, our visitor centers and such. And people will say to me, you know, well, no, no, no we just got to make each state have one vote or something crazy like that. But what's more American or more powerful, more, more Republic than each one of us having one vote? That makes us the most valuable and equal. And when I have that direct conversation, it makes sense to the individuals I speak to. And it makes sense to me that state lines were invented by man. But what we can agree on is that you and I should count as one, period. And we don't right now. We don't. That's right. There's a lot of compartmentalizing designed into the system. I, I'll put it nicely. <laughs> And, you know, and just remember a lot of the old structures we have in place was a methodology for the elites to retain control over the system because we really didn't have have an educated population, um, more or less by design, more by design in some places than others. We're not there anymore. So we need to look at this. One person, one vote, I think makes sense. It's simple. It's approachable. It's doable. The other bullet we have up around representation is around having a fair, effective, and low-cost campaign finance system. We waste so much money on running elections. And I'm not talking about printing ballots or buying voting machines. <laughs> it's everything that happens the months and years before an election ever happens. All the money for all the advertising going on the airwaves, which is quite a boondoggle, quite a boondoggle for media companies, private media companies, and Facebook apparently, and anybody else who's selling advertising at market price. 
So the whole election system is like this whole shadow economy, this whole economy driven just by elections, which is insane. I can't think of a better way to put it. It's just absolutely crazy. And it works really, really well for people who have nothing but money, really bad ideas and nothing but money. And built by people with all the people with nothing but money. Because remember, the founders were the landowners, the people that could vote originally were the landowning men. Okay, so it was just the people with money and the people with power. So we're still in this era where they're still trickling down those rights and providing. And to, 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 to again, frame up some of these uh, next points, the, the founders did not want campaigning. Uh, they didn't even want a presidency. We keep reminding that. But campaigning is something that came out of the ugly party system fights. So it was, pl- it was, it was a gift to the American people from the partisan system we have today. So really, um, it's important to note that there shouldn't have been campaigning. And if the president, the, pres- the, the people that were running for president, the vice president would have been the second runner up. So it was a much different system. It shouldn't have been about campaigning. It should have been about how we were going to move the country together. The president was supposed to be a unifier. And right now, I think, frankly, the presidency has the most guilt for driving how bad the campaign finance system is because it's the only thing that's you know truly a national push. Yeah, thank you, Ray, for that context. It's always important to remember how far we've come. And in our opinion, in the right direction, although we've uh, veered in several places, which is why we're still talking about them. <laughs> so just a few more bullets in the area of campaign finance. Um, as far as proposals go, the planks in this platform would suggest that we need to have set amounts for public funding of campaigns, um, whether it's set by region, because some places, you know, it's more expensive than others. Um, honestly, I would like to see a fixed cost on the front end, and then we fix supply in the law. Meaning, if you if you're gonna you know advertise for campaigning for these types of things, you shouldn't have to pay the market rate for advertising, right? This is not a product for sale. You are not a private business generating revenue from the ad sales. We are trying to execute and exercise democracy. And so there's nothing that we can't do from a law perspective that says all media companies are required to reserve X amount of time for ads or debates, et cetera. So one easy way to start take reducing the cost of campaign finance is requiring donated media outlets time, you know, requiring other, you know, companies or facilities to help uh, offer reduced costs for printing materials. Like there's so many ways to adjust the the cost side. And then, you know, we should then be able to reduce the demand um, on the donation side or the funding side, right? If you can reduce the cost, you reduce the amount of funds are required because the whole point is just to execute an election. Let's remember, <laughs> it's not about creating and uplifting demagogues or heroes or these are just, we're just supposed to be electing representatives 
for our bureaucratic processes, you know, to, to help us out because we have lives to live and we don't want to be reading all the details of every bill that gets put up for election. Right. I mean, unfortunately we have a huge leak with, uh, I don't even talk about, we don't even talk about it here. The, um, ballot propositions, um, because ballot propositions are outside of the standard <laughs> structure. So in any case, you know, if, if, if we're governing well, we don't need as many ballot propositions, right? So we'll, that's, we'll leave that aside for now. Right now it's about election, electing, electioneering and electing representatives. So let's fix the amounts needed for campaign finance. We should restrict donations to campaigns to only citizens and make sure it's only in limited amounts. Why are companies... <laughs> I know why. I think you know why companies, but from a logical perspective, companies are not citizens. The people who work for the companies and own the companies and operate the companies are citizens. They get a vote in the system. Companies should have no vote in the system. Now, I want we want to be conscious here because we do recognize court decisions, et cetera, whatever. So I mean, a corporation is a person. Okay, they are an entity that that's a, that's codified in our law currently. So being respectful of the people, not citizens, but the, the entity that is a corporation, if they want to continue to participate, then why don't they match? Why don't they do matching funds for citizens, right? So we say, instead of us doing our corrupt own initiative, we say, hey, we'll match you. You know, you're giving $100, we'll match your $100 because you're a citizen and we value you. So they can still participate, corporations, people. Okay. Yeah, we can set the rules. I'm not opposed to that as long as there's limits. And again, it's not a, an additional opinion being added into the fray, right? Companies taking out their own ads for their own reasons because they don't like a proposed tax because they're unwilling to change their business operations to not pollute. I mean, I'm just using that as one example, right? And then all these entities, these non-companies that get stood up just to funnel information or funnel dollars, excuse me, and, and put out information. And I'm using information with air quotes. I mean, a lot of it's just propaganda. So you can go create an LLC, a private entity, collect a bunch of campaign, essentially campaign dollars, and pump out all of your campaign advertising all you want for the candidate of your choice. You're not allowed to talk to that candidate, but why does that matter? <laughs> They'll see your ads. So that stuff needs to go away. It's, um, it's just abuse. And they're allowed to lie. You know, the, the current mm -hmm. law allows campaigns to lie, and that seems completely not aligned with our current system. And that, that's why I, I'm concerned about this the way that the, everything's structured right now is that you you have this enablement to just throw out lies and then it's your choice if you need if you want to retract it or not like oops that was that's oops that's campaign it's horrible and it's all a waste like here's one of the areas where we spend so much but the quality of the product is so little like it's not like if you spent a lot of money on a car you would expect it to have more features <laughs> this spending doesn't go anywhere but into big media's back pocket with that we're out of bullets for this one and i think it's time for a break 
time for a message from our sponsor, Citizen Do Good. Fulfilling a dream where all possess an intrinsic love for self-rule that is reciprocated with free speech and equal justice under the law, Citizen Do Good values the promise within the Constitution and the core founding documents. Taken together, they form a framework and an operating manual for our republic that provides us with the means to change with the times. The time is now to deeply re-examine ourselves and our implementation of governance for the dawning of a new day. We are a proud sponsor of the Citizens Prerogative Podcast, a major partner in spreading the good word about civic love and the power of change for us all. At Citizen Do Good, we want to empower all citizens to participate in their republic in a reconstructive way. With that goal in mind, we need your help to stay on mission and grow this community. Please rate the podcast with five stars on iTunes through the app on the web or on your device. If you don't feel like you can give us five stars, let us know why on our sponsor's Facebook page, Citizen Do Good. Thanks for your support. We originally spoke about the marathon, which we're, we're now on. We're starting down that path. I, I thought, you know, wow, it's going to be... Um, going to be interesting to go five episodes and then you made a joke about six and i think i think we might actually go six because it seems like it's there's there's a lot more relevance uh than i originally thought at surface and, and that always happens so thank you but the i think the the car metaphor is also continuing to come home for me because we we think about this vehicle this 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 democracy this system we have this republic excuse me and uh if you can keep it, uh, we have this Republic and this vehicle, if I purchased a vehicle and, and the, the dealer straight out lied to me, straight out violated the contract we made, there are laws, there are protections. There's something called lemon laws. Everybody understands that sense of security when they purchase a vehicle, but why does our, why does our Republic vehicle not have the same security? So I want to kick the tires I want to be able to like, you know, sit in the seats and like rub my, rub my, my, my scent around a bit before I purchase it. And not only that, you want the opportunity, you want the opportunity uh, to have that car repaired or replaced if it's malfunctioning right off the lot. And our system has the promise to be able to do that built into it. Um, the political will in order to get it repaired is a whole nother story. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have a podcast. All right, coming off the heels of that break, um, we're going to move on to the next topic. This episode might run a little bit longer than 30 minutes, but for good reason. Oh, taxation. And I'm so sorry, Ray, we're not going to cover this in the way that you want. Um, I've been promising Ray an IRS episode for years, apparently now, and uh, we still haven't gotten to it. This won't be it. But we are going to talk about taxation. We're going to get close. So let's all agree to agree what we all know about one another. None of us wants to pay taxes. I never wanted to pay taxes even before I paid taxes. I grew up as a kid not wanting to pay taxes, not looking forward to making money because that means I had to pay taxes too. I didn't get to keep all my money. That didn't feel fair. And then I grew up, <laughs> quite frankly. <clears throat> that's all it takes to realize that uh, there's a cost to life. What I also realize is it doesn't need to be as high as it is. It's really important that we pay our fair share. Paying our fair share supports the common good, and it's the right thing to do. After all, all those things described in the Constitution, 
they cost money and we all can benefit from the right investments, not collecting taxes and not providing benefits is not an option. Maybe it was in the 1700s, but it certainly is not an option today. And we've demonstrated it over the decades in this country. People don't realize Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security are government programs, <laughs> just as examples. Of course, there's much more, especially at the state level, um, depending on what state you live in, there's even you know more or less options for you. But let's dive into some of our recommendations around how to make taxation more fair. First, we're going to start with the things that we would propose keeping. We would propose keeping the progressive bracketed design that we have now for um, tax rates according to income buckets. So each bucket of income gets taxed differently based on the dollar amount you received, not the source. So like the first $30,000 has zero tax, the next 20,000 up to 50, right? So from 30 to 50 is a $20,000 block of cash. That $20,000 gets taxed at a little bit higher rate than zero. And then so forth and so on. We have to figure out what the blocks are. You could go to the back of your tax tables and the 1040 instructions today. Um, and you can see what the existing brackets are for each range of income. And so we can structure it so that people who don't make a certain amount have to pay less in tax because that money has to stretch a lot further, right? The more money you have, essentially, the more rich you feel, the more rich you experience, the more tax you can actually afford. And there's an argument to be made that if you are, if you are more rich in this system than others, then perhaps you've derived more benefit from the system than others. Not only have you derived more benefit, but you're going to feel the burden of taxation less because you're still going to be able to eat. You're still going to buy gas. You're still going to get your second, third, fourth, fifth house or investment property. <laughs> so you can afford to pay a little bit more. This is on the income side, not even talking about businesses. This is your neighbor. This is the human with two eyes if they're lucky right? That's walking down the street. So let's keep it progressive. I'm not talking about politics. I'm just talking about the brackets. We should keep tax deferred accounts like IRAs, 401ks, even the HSA, which is a healthcare savings account, which is really just a ridiculous, another financial vehicle for the wealthy to avoid paying taxes for retirement. But if it's available to everyone, then we should keep it. Although we should just provide healthcare so people don't have to save. <laughs> and we'll keep all of the maximums. You know, every year you're only allowed to put so much in an IRA, 401k, HSA, and then you're, you have to hold it until you retire and then you can withdraw it. And I, when we talk about retirees, we'll be talking about changes to how we handle taxes. So um, we're done with the two things we're going to keep. We're going to keep progressive tax brackets and we're going to keep tax deferred accounts. Ray, any objections with the keepers? I, I can't say that I'm upset with the keepers. You know, when it comes to uh, tax policy, there's there's other things that we can also look at, like consumption tax and such to, to right-size things. But th there's some other policies I see that you're 
that your progressive policies you have on here that really kind of push it in the right direction. All right. Thank you. We'll see if others agree. <laughs> All right. So the next bullets are some of the things that would be different under this platform. We would be looking at taxing all income and unrealized gains every year. And this is this unrealized gains taxation is something that's kind of, it's not new in theory, it's just new to our discussions. And it's something that's been kicked around in Congress, I believe, lately, but we haven't seen any bills related to this. So basically, um, oh, in addition to unrealized gains, we would include deferred compensation packages. Um, so today, people who make absurd amounts of money get to tell that company they work for, hey, don't pay me all of my salary this year. Hold it for me. Put it in a tax deferred account. I'll withdraw it later when maybe I've had not such a good year and uh, or I've had some major losses where I can draw down that income, right, and offset it. So you get with, let's just take a step back for a second, because with these deferred compensation packages, keep in mind, it's just giving the rich an option for when to pay taxes, controlling how much they pay. They can wait until um, lower tax brackets get passed for a particular year and then take all of that income in that really cheap tax year. Or they can break it up so that it doesn't put them into a certain tax bracket any given year. So they get this way of even controlling their taxation by controlling the drip of their income that poor people don't have, the rest of us don't have. Anyway, enough about deferred compensation. I'm sure there's all kinds of funny, schemey things out there as well for people who have more than enough to pay their fair share to manipulate their income so that they don't pay anything. So if we're going to open it up to all income, unrealized gains, and deferred compensation, uh, likewise, we'll, we'll keep it open on the flip side of that for unrealized losses or deductions in kind. So if we're going to tax you because of gains you had in the stock market, even though you didn't sell your stock, then we should allow you to deduct the losses in the bad years as well. And when we talk about unrealized gains for those who are not investors, what we're talking about is the fact that today you only pay tax when you sell a stock you own. And if you never sell the stock, you never pay the tax. So for instance, Jeff Bezos has billions of dollars, but it's all in Amazon stock. He never has to cash out that stock. He never has to pay taxes on that stock because he never has to cash it out. Instead, Plenty of banks will give him loans until he dies, and all those loans are secured by the stock he owns. And I won't even talk about what happens to his kids when he dies, because all that stock goes to them, and they pay no tax when that stock goes to them, right? Maybe I'll take a minute on that, since we know we're running over on this episode. There's this concept called mark-to-market. People may or may not have heard of this, but let me just throw out the scenario. Jeff Bezos has accumulated billions of dollars in stock. It's worth billions of dollars because he was buying it or getting it distributed to him by the company cheaper for free. Let's say the first stock he bought was cents or dollars, and now it's worth hundreds or thousands, and he dies. He never sells that stock while he's alive. He dies, and in his documents when he dies, all of that stock gets transferred to his children or whoever, whoever he wants it to go to. doesn't matter. He gets to say, 
who receives his billions of dollars worth of stock. Here's the trickery. That stock has grown, right? He may have owed, he may have had gains of billions of dollars on that stock. When it transfers to these other people upon his death, the cost basis, the dollar amount that's considered against for the gains is reset. It's marked to the market. Meaning, if Amazon stock's worth $100 today, then it's treated as if the inheritors, the children and whoever he gives it to upon his death, is buying it at $100. They're buying it at the price of the day Jeff Bezos dies or the day it's transferred. So all that realized value, all of the billions of dollars in gains that never went taxed or were never taxed, <laughs> gets baked into the price and transferred to the heirs. The heirs' cost basis is inclusive of all the gains at this point. They owe no tax. They owe no tax on the gains that happened during Bezos's life. That means those tax dollars are never realized. Essentially means that the rich have a better security on the posterity than most of us when it comes to the Constitution. So they're, they are very good at securing their constitutional rights, or what they believe they're... So the Constitution's alive and well if you're wealthy. And, and that's, that's the problem. No, when I learned the details of mark to market, it really, um, it, it still makes the hair stand on the back of my neck because it is just, it makes my stomach turn. It is so unfair. It is so, it is so unfair. And I mean, I guess on the, since you're there on the flip side, folks, um, if they mark to market and that company in turn fails, like some companies might, they're, they're going to receive the, obviously the IRS benefit, right, of a loss. So if it's, it's very high and, and then the, the company passes, right, and then news comes out that the person's passed, et cetera, et cetera, well, the market may tumble, but they, so they're going to get an IRS credit, a nice little IRS credit for a couple of years because the company failed, which a lot of companies probably do fail once founders run. Oh, now I think I really am going to vomit, Ray. I, I hadn't considered <laughs> I hadn't considered the loss side. Okay, let me take a deep breath. Um, so this is why taxing unrealized gains and losses every year is this is a good solution to this problem because it means every year it went up, somebody paid a little, every year it went down, they got to, you know, deduct a little. But we're not going lifetimes and lifetimes without ever collecting a modicum of tax and then adding insult to injury not only not collecting tax but giving them the opportunity to defer even more tax not to be paid if there's a decrease in the value of that that stock that's been marked to the market at the time of death okay so we're going to tax all income and as far as retirees go we are so unfair to them as well um, we should really carve out, and maybe you know, if you guys can keep me honest. I haven't retired yet, um, but we should be carving out a huge niche on the low end of the brackets, so that retirees pay no income tax on something like their first five or low six figures of income every year for couples. Right? If you're if you're single, your first five figures of income 
coming out of a retirement account should be tax free. I mean, we should allow people who have retired you know, to go off and live their best lives and hopefully maybe take care of children. Who knows what kind of institutions we can establish, you know, when we get retirees involved in society again, but we can use the bracketed system to control how much they pay. Now, if you're one of these absurdly wealthy people and you're retiring, um, you can afford to pay some taxes. So anything you choose to take over a certain bracket, you're going to pay. You're going to pay taxes on. We're not Obviously, we're not getting into the weeds about what these brackets are, where they are, how much the tax is. That's, that's for later. We're talking about the structure here. So let's come back to everyone paying their fair share for a minute. So we mentioned we're going to be taxing all income. Everyone's going to pay their fair share. And this includes currently untaxed entities like sports teams, nonprofits, and religions. Ooh. <laughs> Maybe some controversy, but quite frankly, it's very logical. It makes a lot of sense. Hear us out. First of all, I think we'll get the least amount of pushback on sports teams because they can afford it the most. Out of the groups, I don't know, religion we can debate. But sports teams for sure are billions, multi-billion dollar industries. They're investment vehicles for the wealthy. Um, and right now they are a tax-free haven. And there's all kinds of other issues with uh, professional sports and not just professional sports, but college level sports. The court is starting to look into compensation for college level athletes, which makes absolutely perfect sense. We should eliminate slavery in all the places it still exists in the United States. So sports teams, they can afford it and they have a duty to give back to the communities from which they profit. Nonprofits are probably the, you know, the hardest one on this list to keep there, but they can handle a little tax too. We can give them their own brackets like retirees and figure out the best way to avoid impacting them. But to be quite honest, there are plenty of nonprofits out there that are for-profit vehicles or are political operations or are shelters for rich people to put their money and avoid taxation in another way. Not all nonprofits do good things. And we can use the tax system to discourage these from becoming havens for bad things. The idea that the NFL is a nonprofit, right? Which you would think, they, I always thought they were a for-profit company. They sure do run a lot of money through. And, and just think about the stadiums, right? Think about that large, how much infrastructure in our cities is circled around, not just the stadiums, but the arenas, the ballparks, whatever, there's so much investment, civic investment. Our dollars, our taxation dollars are tied into getting people to those buildings, right? So these nonprofit havens can just, you know, suck more of that, that fuel out of us, more of that energy, more of, our, more of our income out of us and say, thank you. I won't pay any taxes for this, by the way. Appreciate the roads, appreciate the infrastructure. Insult to injury, salt and wounds, all the metaphors. Okay, we saved the best for last. The government shouldn't be in the business of ordaining groups of people as religious, as religions. And they certainly should not be bestowing upon them the divine benefits of paying no taxes. Okay, let me say that again. The government should not be in the business of picking official 
religions. And that's what we have today, right? Because you have some groups of people that get together and call themselves a religion, but they don't get no taxes because the IRS doesn't recognize them. They're just a cult. They're just a plain cult. They're not, they're not to the level of a religious cult or a religion. Unbelievable. It's just absolutely insane. When you read the Constitution, we're not supposed to establish, ordain, or, or, or anything related to religion as far as the state is concerned. And here we are doling out uh, tax benefits to groups of people who choose to form official, what's considered official religions. What do you think about that, Ray? It's it's historical, right? So, I mean, I think we've even spoken about it in the past, but in prior episodes, but it is, it is that those individuals that were the conservatives, racists, the, those, um, those people in that wing of, of politics really focus their energy on that, right? It's not, they, they've always just been about subvert subverting or doing something very, very evil. And, and they focused the policy. They were in the positions to turn those policies um, positively towards morality, right? So all that energy, especially when they talk about interracial marriage, et cetera, all of those wings eventually just use whatever power and pushed it into some sort of other way. So they just armed themselves. And I believe if I remember correctly, the movement was that they had to counteract, right? There was such a swell of progressive and, and sexual deviance, right? That they mm -hmm. had to arm the, uh, the, the churches, et cetera, and give them more money to fight the battle, the, the crusade, if you will. That's a good point. If I if we go back and do the research, it's probably all around to like when you think about um, the rise of communism and the fear of atheism, atheism associated with communism. Right. And that's when we moved much closer to religions and Christianity in particular. That's when in God we trust showed up, started it's showing up in our time, money. Right. right? Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. So it was like this huge political move and people were well primed and positioned to take advantage of it. And look at now, look at these religions. I, I see them as the same as these sports teams. I see them exactly the same. The amount of money they pull in, the amount of money these humans, these individuals, these citizens collect from one another and pay absolutely no taxes for is mind boggling. They've got arenas too now. They've got arenas now. They have arenas now. So the point is that it's an equal burden. It's a fair share. Everyone needs to pay for the infrastructure. These organizations have equal access to our legal system. They have equal access to all of the institutions that are established and paid for through our taxation under the constitution. Well, taxation is not under the constitution, but all the institutions that they have access to are established under the constitution and they pay nothing and they can file lawsuits. They can uh, donate to campaigns that oppress citizens now, right? Throughout the States. Florida is a prime example today that's sliding towards authoritarianism, much like it may have been in the past. Right. No place new for Florida, no place new for the South. I mean, Connecticut's not much better anyway when it comes to religion. So I won't go there.
I grew up there. It's the only reason why I throw it out. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of Northeast states that are a little too in bed with religion. I think about Boston and I think about all of the children that have allowed to been, be abused over the years and not just in Boston. I mean, I won't, I'm, I'm not going to touch that right now. So that's it on religion. I hope you all understand the point we're making. Um, first and foremost, back to the constitution, the fact that we allow some religions to not pay taxes while others do uh, shows the hypocrisy and the fact that we shouldn't recognize any religion. We shouldn't treat them any differently. A company is a company, an organization is an organization, a nonprofit is a nonprofit. Equal and fair. Last bullet, last bullet, unless we want to talk more, but businesses, I haven't been talking about businesses, right? And they have to pay taxes too. Although <laughs> they have the best, they have access to the best parts of the tax code. They get the most deductions. They Businesses, if I can recommend to everyone to like become a business one way or another, that's the way to go. That's how you get the most tax deductions. Um, so we would propose, and this is the direction it seems like a lot of the Western governments are going, is to propose a minimum tax rate uh, for all businesses. And that tax rate should be set so that it's competitive to our international peers. And we should be placing a higher burden on industries with environmentally insensitive components. Quite frankly, anything, any industry we want to change, we want to evolve or move in a new direction for the betterment of society, which is the whole point of having businesses to begin with, to make things better. We can use tax policy to, to steer things, encourage uh, businesses to move in those directions that we need them to. After all, the government, we the people, is usually paying to clean up their messes. So it behooves us to keep those, those kids playing nicely on the playground. As far as businesses go, I mean, that's, that's about it. I, we don't need to go into, I think, a bevy of, of detail on how taxes should be applied to businesses other than to get to motivate them in the direction that makes the most sense for the betterment of society. When we take a pause here, and reflect on the Constitution's opening from episode 50. Is there anything that stands out in relationship to this topic? So this was back when we were talking about forming a perfect, a more perfect union for justice, domestic tranquility, common defense, promoting general welfare, and securing liberty for our posterity. Feels like Taxation and representation touches on all of those bits and pieces. It's the how and, and the what, the what and the how. What are we going to do? Tranquility, justice, defense, welfare. How are we going to do it? We're going to pay for it. How are we going to pay for it? With taxes, everyone. And how are we going to make sure that our taxes are spent well? Proper representation in the government. People who really represent our best interest and the best interest of those investment dollars. Do you have any additions, modifications, subtractions? Oh my goodness. I'm just, I'm just running on time clock at this point, you know, 50 like minutes. I've, I've been as quiet as a, I've been as buttoned as a, as a, as I've ever been today. You're like, I burst in at the seams with historical facts, but I'm just trying to keep your time clock. <laughs> 
Thank you. All right, then let's just move into calls to action. Ray's being so respectful. I appreciate it. I don't want to, I don't want to bowl over. So for calls to action, um, let's just, uh, you know, in the past, we've talked about House Resolution 1 for the People Act. Unfortunately, that thing isn't going anywhere. Um, Debt on arrival has been in the Senate, and it's the first thing the House passed for this Congress. So it's not going anywhere. Um, but now we can keep our eyes and peels for or our eyes and ears peeled like fruit for some flurry of smaller changes to specific mechanisms of our election systems. So we'll include an example in here, um, House Resolution 5746, Freedom to Vote, the John R. Lewis Act, which is an amalgamation of some other acts that have been going around. Obviously, based on the number I was talking about, H.R. 1, the first resolution, we're up to uh, 5,746 in this current 117th Congress. And this may be the one. Number 5,746 might actually pass and make it to the president's desk. That'd be fantastic. You also need to find out if your state is assigning its slate of electors. I mentioned the Electoral College earlier in this episode. Check out the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. So we don't have to change the Constitution to work our way around the Electoral College. We can do it one state at a time. And if you think liberty to vote is being nickeled and dimed, the list of bills focused on taxation, literal USD, is dizzying. This is an area where our principles on the macro level play an important role, motivated by a simple idea that even our most social primate cousins understand. Fairness. Thank you to Science and PBS. We're going to include a link to a very short segment um, from NewsHour, which is touching, it's eye-opening, and it behooves us all to re-examine ourselves and our system. So keep in mind our emotions, what we've learned, thank you science, teaching us that our emotions are not unique to us as humans. Fairness is something we've evolved with for a very long time, and it is not something to be taken lightly, and it is not something to be taken advantage of. And it's something we're sorely missing throughout our system today. All right, we're way over time. Thank you, Ray, for letting us run the clock out. Us letting us, letting me talk everyone's ear off. I appreciate that. We have been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. Uh, thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It's truly been a bit of a laugh because you celebrated the last bullet when the program notes literally had like five bullets more. And this segment has probably hundreds of bullets more. So it's been a delight. <laughs> oh, it's been something, that's for sure. Let's call it a grand experiment. <laughs> for more information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendogood.com and click on podcast. While you're there, hit up the contact us page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. Special thanks to you, our listeners. We saved the best for last. You are the best and you have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sample from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty free through Fizzly and Studios Inc.